Welcome to the Trinity Church Aberdeen podcast, where you can listen to our most recent sermons. To find out more about who we are and what we believe, visit trinityaberdeen.org.uk. Mark's Gospel, Mark's Gospel chapter 10, Mark's Gospel chapter 10 and uh, I'm going to read verses 1 to 12 uh, of this passage. I said earlier uh, this morning and last week that we're pausing just to look at this very difficult topic of Jesus and divorce. So let me just say a couple of caveats, a couple of things at the start this evening. This um, It's going to be a little bit slightly different. It will still feel, I hope, like a sermon, but you are going to need that Bible in front of you. We're going to be outside, Mark, not just this one passage. Uh, We're going to do a little bit of uh, dotting around. And I think it's very important as well. The second thing to say is just for this evening's sermon, the the debt that I owe to the preacher who was meant to be here this evening. So Kevin DeYoung uh, was meant to be preaching. He's not here, but in a way you are getting Kevin DeYoung anyway, because everything I'm going to give you, well, not everything, but most of what I'm going to give you, uh, I've benefited from his thinking on this topic immensely. Uh, It's very important to say what, what we're going to look at together is not exactly the same as his position. Important from here that you don't Uh, label Kevin DeYoung as believing everything that I believe. Uh, It's not exactly his position, but I I do owe him a debt uh, for what we're going to look at together this evening. So let's read uh, read these verses. We looked at them last week, and now we come come back to them again. Mark's Gospel, chapter 10. Let's hear God's word. Jesus left there and went to the region of Judea and beyond the Jordan, and crowds gathered to him again. And again, as was his custom, he taught them. And Pharisees came up and in order to test him, asked, Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? Jesus answered them, What did Moses command you? They said, Moses allowed a man to write a certificate of divorce and to send her away. And Jesus said to them, Because of your hardness of heart, he wrote you this commandment. But from the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. And so they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. And in the house, the disciples asked him again about this matter. And he said to them, whoever divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery against her. And if she divorces her husband and marries another, she commits adultery. Amen. May God help us and bless. Bless to us his holy and true word. This evening's sermon is difficult. It is difficult to preach. On lots of different levels, and those are the least of the difficulties this evening. Jesus and divorce. My, my guess is that there is not a single, a single person in this room who has not been in some way affected by divorce. In our families, there are people we deeply love who have experienced it. We have friends who are walking through a divorce or heading towards a divorce, maybe a bitter one. 
Personally, ourselves, we may know the pain of it. And part of the reason for teaching on it this evening is because we all need to know what love looks like in hard places, don't we? There are difficult sermons because sometimes life is more difficult, more brutally difficult than we ever imagined it would be. So this sermon this evening may not be what you need right now today, but it might be what someone else needs. It may be what one day all of us need to help somebody else or to help ourselves. And so I simply want to dive right in. I want to give us six Six biblical principles about Jesus and divorce. Six biblical principles. Here's the first one. Jesus says, start with intention before concession. Start with intention before concession. Okay, if that sounds difficult or strange, don't worry. I think it will get, it get easier. And I'll, let me explain exactly what I mean. Jesus says to us this from Mark chapter 10. Look. When you do your difficult thinking about divorce, okay, if you're going to start thinking about it, start your thinking with God's intention for marriage before you come to the concessions God gives for divorce. Okay, it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a, a simply a point about how you start to do it. Start with what God intended before you look at what He then concedes. Where you start from is so important, isn't it? And in Mark chapter 10, what we find here is the Pharisees, well look at it again, trying to get Jesus to comment on divorce by asking him what he thinks about the concession before the intention. Isn't that what they do? They they get him to, they, they ask him about something way down the line in the Bible story. And Jesus says, yes, we'll come to that in just a moment. I know where you're going with this, fellas. But aren't you forgetting the beginning? Look how it works. Verse 2, Pharisees came up and in order to test him, asked, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? Those words there are a reflection of the book of Deuteronomy, chapter 24, verse 1. We're going to turn to that. Uh, a little bit later. That's where the question comes from directly. It's a very important passage. But Deuteronomy is book five of the law, isn't it? Book number five. It is Moses speaking to the people. And Jesus says to the Pharisees here, I see your copy of Deuteronomy. I can see that it's well thumbed and underlined and highlighted and all the tricky bits are highlighted. But have you not read Genesis? See how it works? Jesus said to them, verse six, but... From the beginning of creation, Moses wrote you this commandment. But from the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife. Start with the intention before you get to the concession. And this is hugely important for us. Let me give you two important reasons why this is this is so important. Number, lesson number one. I saw this. I saw something like this on Twitter a couple of weeks ago at the end of 2021. I saw somebody say on Twitter, the main, "Here's the main lesson of 2021: Don't, don't." Right at the end of the year, people are wondering, should I should I book a holiday? Should I go and visit my friends? Am I free to do anything? What, what can you? What has 2021 told us? Don't. All your plans are like 
grass, aren't they? They're going to fall away. Friends, the main thing that Jesus says to us about divorce is this. Don't. Don't. Don't do it. Divorce is not what God intended for marriage. You're talking to me, says Jesus here, about the acceptable concessions for one to become two again. That's the concession, but God's original intention is for two to become one and to stay one. Marriage is the sacred union between one man and one woman. God gave it to help man and woman together to tend the world in which we live. And God's intention is for that oneness to last a lifetime. The, the principle that Jesus is working here is working with here is, is that what is original is weightier. Isn't that right? Yes, there are concessions, but... The original is best. I don't, I don't know who, who it is uses that. You see it in advertising, don't you, all the time. Still the original, still the best. That's what Jesus is getting at here. You know, friends, it may be that at some point, those of us this evening who are married, and maybe those of us who are delightfully, happily married today, it may very well be the case that one day we find ourselves looking for a way out, a valid reason to walk away. And Jesus says, before you do that, start with God's original intention. Start with, come, come back to, to what God intended for your marriage before you do anything with it. And here's why. Here's the second lesson from this. That original intention shows God's tender heart. And the concessions show our hard hearts. You see that? Isn't that right? Isn't that right in verse 5? Moses allowed a man to write a certificate of divorce and to send her away. And Jesus says to them, yes, that's true. But because of your hardness of heart, he wrote you that commandment. Yes, the Lord Jesus may be raising the bar for us here or, or keeping it high, but he is tender to us. Oh, he is so tender to us as he does it. See, did you notice that little word test in verse 2? As we read, the Pharisees came and in order to test him. See, the Pharisees here, they're not, they're not pastors in perplexity, are they? They're not shepherds who are desperately trying to help the people in their congregation with wisdom and grace and love. And they're not people who are coming to Jesus to ask Jesus himself for help. Imagine that. They could have come to him and said, look, we've got these really thorny problems, people with broken hearts. How do we help them? No, this is a trap. A trap. Will Jesus be conservative or liberal on the question of divorce? And in Jesus' day, you see, this, this question in verse 2, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? The question was, Matthew, Matthew chapter 19 makes this clear. The question is, is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? And in Jesus' day, some people were literally saying an, an improperly cooked meal could be grounds for divorce. Is that okay, Jesus? And before Jesus answers what they're really getting at here, and, and friends, he is going to answer 
Isn't Jesus saying here, well, isn't he saying but the, that by going all the way back to Genesis, look, the fact that we're even asking this question, how can I divorce my wife? The fact we're even asking it shows how far we've fallen from God's original intention. For Jesus knows that when someone leaves a marriage, they are, they are pulling apart what God has joined. You know, it's very important to know that every single marriage in every part of the world, in every religion, whether the marriage happens in a church or happens in a registry office or happens on a beach, every marriage in the world happens before God. God designed it. It's, It's his idea. He designed the gluing together. And every divorce tears it apart. And the Pharisees come to Jesus and they just want to know, when is it okay to tear? What what acceptable grounds do I have for tearing Jesus? See what Jesus is saying back to him? Why are there no tears in your eyes when you're asking about divorce? Do you remember what we said last week? How, How do you receive the kingdom? Verses 1 to 12, we need soft hearts. I know, I know Moses said you could do it, says Jesus, but did you not hear the pain, the pain in Moses' voice when he said you could? It's because of, because of hardness of hearts, because things are broken. How you receive the kingdom, we need soft hearts, we need humble status, we need empty hands. And here it is this evening, 1 to 12, we need soft hearts. I think the Lord Jesus is beautifully tender here because Jesus sees two people joined together, doesn't he? A man and a woman. And the Pharisees, well, look at their question. Is it lawful for who to do what to whom? Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? The Pharisees see men and what they're allowed to do to their wives. Jesus sees that what God loves to unite, humankind loves to divide. And Jesus is saying that original intention matters so, so much. God didn't put your wife beside you. He didn't just put her there at your side. He glued you together, glued you to each other. And you Pharisees, you're saying that divorce is ascending away. And of of course it is on one level, it is ascending away. Jesus says, I want to remind you, divorce is actually an amputation. Brothers and sisters, one of these two approaches to divorce is cruel. The other is tender. Jesus knows the immense pain that divorce can bring. The immense pain. You know, you were doing this, weren't you, just before Christmas, wrapping presents, and uh, most Christmas wrapping paper, it's flimsy, isn't it? Unless you bought the expensive stuff, it's flimsy stuff, and you're sellotaping it badly, and it hasn't worked, and you peel it off, and huge, big white bit left, isn't there, in the paper, and you think, is this the kind of person I can give a white bit? No, no, better do it again. You, you just can't pull it apart, can you? The, the envelope that you've sealed and you forgot to put something in, you try and open it, and it's ruined it. Things that have been glued and stuck together. You cannot just pull them apart. Divorced people often, often speak of how the divorce tears at the very fabric of who they are as a man and a woman. Two people cannot easily be united in one flesh and then be just separated back into the same two individuals that they were before. 
the Lord Jesus knows that the price of separation can be very, very high. The Pharisees are looking at data, aren't they? Tick boxes on a sheet. Jesus is looking at people. Pharisees want hard and fast rules and Jesus, well, Jesus sees a world of, a world of pain. Number one, friends, start with the intention. Number two, divorce is not always sinful. Divorce is not always sinful. Start with God's intention, yes, but there is a but. God's first gardeners became vandals, didn't they? And with them, every man and woman who has ever lived has become a vandal with Adam and Eve in this world. There is now no flesh, one flesh union of any man and any woman that is not in some way spoiled. And which does not in some way also continue the spoiling of creation. We are fallen people, aren't we? And fallen unions sometimes fail. So here's here's what we need to say. I guess this is probably one of the things I got from Kevin DeYoung. I can't remember. Here's one of the things we need to say. Every divorce is a product of sin. Every single divorce is a product of sin. But not every divorce is therefore sinful. Okay, let me say it again. Every divorce is the product of sin. But not every divorce is therefore sinful. Malachi chapter 2, God says, I hate divorce. I hate divorce. And because of the strength of that language, some Christians have argued down through the years that there are no grounds whatsoever for divorce. And I think that, that view can do immense damage. What that view gets right is that every divorce is the product of sin, yes. But what it gets wrong is to assume, therefore, that every divorce is automatically sinful. Here's the first bit I want you to turn to. Turn back in your Old Testament to the book of Jeremiah, chapter 3. Okay, slightly heavier material this evening, I know that, but the regular rustling of pages is going to keep you awake, isn't it? Jeremiah, chapter 3, and verse 6. Look at this. The Lord said to me in the days of King Josiah, if you look, it's page 629 if you're looking in the Black Bibles. I've got the page numbers here. I should give you those to help. Page 629, Jeremiah chapter 3. Did I get that right? Is that right? 629? Yep. Yep. The Lord said to me in the days of King Josiah, have you seen what she did? That faithless one Israel, how she went up on every high hill and under every green tree and there she played the whore. And I thought, after, after she has done all this, she will return to me. But she did not return, and her treacherous sister Judah saw it. She saw that for all the adulteries of that faithless one Israel, I had sent her away with a decree of divorce. Yet her treacherous sister Judah did not fear, but she too went and played the whore. Isn't that amazing? Israel's worship of false gods, her idolatry. God says it's like prostitution. And it is so sinful that God divorces his own people. It's an amazing picture of the exile as God's people are sent off into captivity. It's like God sending them through the post a certificate of divorce. You see it? Every divorce is a product of sin. And yet, 
God himself is not sinning, is he, in cutting his people off from their land? Remember Joseph, Sinclair Ferguson preaching in December? Joseph, as he discovers that Mary is pregnant, what did he plan to do? He planned to divorce her quietly because he was a righteous man, a just man. Nothing sinful in divorcing for that reason. Many people in our churches have had to live with the stigma of divorce and the kind of shadow of suspicion that has been cast long and dark over them because of divorce. And it it is not right. God himself at one time, in an incredible way, friends, can I put it like this? God became a divorcee. Many people feel a sense of shame today because we have not been clear enough about the fact that not every divorce is sinful. We need to be clear that some divorces are, many divorces are, but not everyone is. So here's the big question. What are the grounds for a divorce that is not itself an act of sin? I think there are three grounds for this kind of divorce. Here they are. Here's the next three principles. Number three. Divorce is permitted but not compulsory for sexual immorality. Divorce is permitted but not compulsory for sexual immorality. I really want you to notice that language, permitted but not compulsory. And I'm going to use that language for the next two principles as well. Permitted but not compulsory. And we're going to look at the permission each time and then I'm going to say something at the end about the not compulsory bit. So here's the first ground, permitted but not compulsory for sexual immorality. This story in Mark's Gospel, chapter 10, 1 to 12, you get exactly the same story in Matthew's Gospel, chapter 19. But there, Jesus adds an extra clause. Whoever divorces his wife, except for sexual immorality, and marries another, commits adultery. It's what's known as the exception clause. Many scholars think Mark doesn't include it simply because it was so well known. Everybody knew about this clause. Whoever divorces his wife except for sexual immorality and marries another commits adultery. The exception to committing adultery is if you have had adultery committed against you first. The reason Jesus makes that exception is because of Deuteronomy chapter 24. So just turn back there to Deuteronomy chapter 24, page 165. Deuteronomy chapter 24, and just the opening verses of the chapter. When a man takes a wife and marries her, if then... She finds no favor in his eyes because he has found some indecency in her. And he writes her certificate of divorce and puts it in her hand and sends her out of his house. This is what the Pharisees are quoting back to Jesus in their question. Okay? Now, if you look at verse 1 of chapter 24, the key phrase is that little phrase, he finds some indecency in her. What does that phrase mean? It's a very ambiguous phrase, isn't it? Even as as we look at it in our Bibles. And it was just as ambiguous a phrase for Jews in the first century. And you won't be at all surprised to know that Jewish people, just like Christian church-going people, argued over things 
immensely. They argued about the meaning of these few little words, some indecency. They argued constantly about it. Now, in general, that little phrase, some indecency, in general, the word means something repulsive. But but what exactly? What, what exactly is repulsive? And as usually happens today, so happened here in the first century and for centuries before it, a contentious split emerged. There, there was a, a difference of opinion among the rabbis that you had a conservative school and a more liberal school. The more conservative school said this phrase, some indecency, it means unchastity. It means sexual unfaithfulness alone. It's referring to something sexual. That's what's in the frame here. If your wife commits a sexual sin, you may divorce her. But the other school of thought, the more liberal school of thought, if you like, they widened it and they said, no, 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 a spoiled dinner on a Friday night that's enough to divorce your wife. So which is it to be? Which one of those two things is it to be? And by the time Jesus arrives in the first century, everybody knew there were these two schools, the conservative, more restrictive, sexual unfaithfulness only, the more liberal, expansive, get rid of her for almost any reason school. It's a very significant issue. One of those approaches opens wide the door for divorce on almost any grounds. Anything that the husband deems worthy of divorce. The other one narrows the grounds, doesn't it, to sexual misconduct. When these Pharisees come to Jesus and ask him, they're asking him, is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause, for some indecency? When they ask him that question, what they want to know is, which side of this debate are you going to come down on, Jesus? So you, you, you come home from the synagogue or you, you've been working in the vineyard and you've been working hard all day and you walk in the door and the house is a mess. Your wife's at home, the ki- toys are all over the floor and there's no dinner on the table and you have an argument and you enter a season of difficulty and say, do you know what? We're done. You think it's all your wife's fault. She's to blame. The Pharisees are saying, Jesus, is that time for the divorce courts? Can you send your wife away for any cause, for some indecency like that? Or... Is divorce only permissible when the one flesh sexual union has been breached in some way? Friends, in Matthew's Gospel, the Lord Jesus is explicit. The limited, narrow ground for divorce is right. He he sides with the more conservative school. Sexual immorality is the only reason for sending your wife away, not a spoiled dinner or some other form of irritation that's just happened to upset the man. Isn't the Lord Jesus tender? Isn't he protective of women? Protective of women and trying to, to gently chastise the men who want to cast women away like that? No, Jesus is saying, you may not cast her aside quickly. That word in Matthew's Gospel for sexual immorality, it it includes, but it is not limited to, sexual intercourse. Gross gross lewdness, if you like. Something that brings catastrophic damage to the one flesh union. See, marriage is at its heart a sexual union. 
Marriage is a sexual relationship. You cannot set fire to that sexual relationship without in some way tearing at what is at the very heart of a marriage. For nothing arouses such intense anger or pain or jealousy as sexual unfaithfulness. And Jesus says, where there seems to be a profound severing of that one flesh union, divorce is permitted. So I think this means that in Mark's Gospel chapter 10 and in Matthew chapter 19, Jesus is addressing a particular debate in his day. You can't understand either of those two passages without realizing he's entering a debate, a bit like Brexit today or independence in Scotland. Which side are you going to be on, Jesus? That's what they're asking in this question. And when Jesus says in Matthew chapter 19 that the only ground for divorce is sexual immorality, he does not mean, in my view, that that is the only ground for divorce. Full stop, period. Absolutely nothing else. No, Jesus means in this particular debate over the meaning of that phrase, some indecency, in that particular war of words, Jesus is on the side of those who say indecency means sexual unfaithfulness only. But that cannot mean it is the only grounds for divorce because principle number four, principle number four, divorce is permitted but not compulsory for desertion. Divorce is permitted but not compulsory for desertion. I want you to turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 7. If you're flagging, this is the last passage we're going to turn to, I think. 1 Corinthians chapter 7. May not be. Maybe I'm just giving you hope. 1 Corinthians chapter 7, page 955. Chapter 7 and verse 12. Listen to what Paul says. To the rest I say, I, not the Lord, that if any brother has a wife who is an unbeliever and she consents to live with him, he should not divorce her. And if any woman has a husband who is an unbeliever and he consents to live with her, she should not divorce him. Friends, that is, that is profoundly helpful for many of us, isn't it? Many of us know the pain of a spouse who is not joined to the Lord, joined to us but not joined to the Lord Jesus, or who has wandered from the faith or left left us the profound pain of that and oh the tenderness of God's word to say it is not sinful to remain married. For the unbelieving husband is made holy because of his wife and the unbelieving wife is made holy because of her husband. Otherwise your children would be unclean but as it is they are holy. But... But if the unbelieving partner separates, let it be so. In such cases, the brother or sister is not enslaved. God has called you to peace. See, here are believers in Corinth, and they're saying to, saying to Paul, look, what, what does my new love for the Lord Jesus mean for my old love for my husband? Or my wife, is this person who's not followed me into this new devotion to Christ? What do I do with them? It's so important to see the, the principle of trusting in the Lord Jesus does not mean that we are now kind of 
airlifted out of the world and out of our networks of relationships. One flesh means one flesh means one flesh for life. So stay as you are. But Paul knows that not every unbelieving spouse likes their partner's new love. Jesus in the home can make somebody leave the home. And if that happens, if there is desertion, then the the person deserted is not bound in any way. And so, friends, when you put Mark and Matthew and 1 Corinthians 7 together, that means that there have been two traditional grounds for divorce in Protestant theology. Sexual immorality and desertion. In both of those cases, the marriage covenant is severed. One because of sexual intimacy takes place with someone else. And the other one, it's severed because the other party's just not there anymore. They've gone, they've left. But I think there is another ground for divorce. A ground that has been strangely neglected by the church. And so, it turns out I was wrong. I'm going to ask you to look at Exodus chapter 21. One more passage to look at, please. Exodus chapter 21. Page 62. You're doing well. You get a sticker after tonight. It says, I was there. I survived the sermon on Jesus and divorce at Trinity. Exodus chapter 21, verse 9. If he designates her for his son, well, let's read from verse 7. When a man sells his daughter as a slave, she shall not go out as the male slaves do. If she does not please her master who has designated her for himself, then he shall let her be redeemed. He shall have no right to sell her to a foreign people since he has broken faith with her. If he designates her for his son, he shall deal with her as with a daughter. If he takes another wife to himself, he shall not diminish her food or clothing or her marital rights. And if he does not do these three things for her, she shall go out for nothing. She shall leave the marriage bond freely without payment of money. Here's principle number five, friends. Divorce is permitted but not compulsory for humiliating neglect and abuse. Divorce is permitted but not compulsory for humiliating neglect and abuse. See, the, the context here is slave marriages, but they are still marriages, aren't they? And it is clear from what we've just read there that something short of adultery or sexual immorality is given as a permission for divorce. And for some reason, that, for some reason in church history, the, the meaning of Deuteronomy 24 and that little phrase, some indecency, has dominated the Christian church's understanding of divorce. But in fact, it is most likely that most rabbis in the Old Testament and at the time of Jesus took it for granted that to refuse to provide food or clothing or conjugal rights to your wife, to your marriage partner, to refuse to do those things constituted a humiliating form of abuse which she should not have to endure for life. See, in fact, if you look at Exodus chapter 21... The ideas in those verses that we just read together have made it into our marriage vows, haven't they? 
We, we know that on a wedding day, a husband promises to his wife, what does he say? To forsake all others, and she says that to him. There's the sexual immorality issue. But what else do we say to one another? Will you take this woman to be your wife? Will you love her, comfort her, honor and protect her? It's a beautiful rendering of those ideas in Exodus, isn't it? Adultery can end a marriage. Desertion can end a marriage. And one of the cruelest forms of desertion there can be can be the kind of desertion that takes place emotionally or psychologically or physically even while the abuser is standing right there beside you. Present to a spouse, yes, but present only to harm. Not too, friends, in my view, the, the humiliation of neglect and abuse means that divorce may be permitted. And we need to be clear about this, don't we? We need to be crystal clear. And I think we need to be, this has come home to me even more clearly since the first time I preached this sermon to you years ago. The sanctity of marriage is never a sanctuary for a man or a woman in wreaking devastating physical or emotional or psychological abuse on a spouse. And the Bible has no warrant for domestic abuse or violence in any form. And particularly in churches, we, we have the incredible privilege, don't we, of kind of living together within an extended family. And sometimes a church family needs to provide shelter and love for men and women while other people get involved to try and bring about the right kind of end to devastating damage that has happened in a marriage. Here's the sixth. Here's the final principle. With this I'm finished. Number six. Divorce does not have to be the final chapter in anybody's story. Divorce does not have to be the final chapter in anybody's story. Do you know for me in 15 years, friends, pastoral ministry, do you know what the, the most upsetting, difficult thing is when it comes to marriage relationships? It is so rare. And it has Wonderfully, in God's kindness, it has happened. But it is so, so rare that you, you get a couple coming to the elders of a church or coming to a minister and saying, do you know what, we're just beginning to really struggle. And before this gets any worse, we want some help. That is so rare. What, what usually happens is you only get to sit down with somebody when things have gone so far so that actually what they're really looking for, a couple is really looking for, is your approval for what they've already decided or what one of them has already decided will happen. This is over. And people want a minister to kind of sign off on it, to, to, to give approval to it. It's like a form of confession, but without anybody wanting to actually name sin as sin and to, to seek the kind of help that is needed. People so often want you to read the final chapters of the story so that you can approve and say, look, there you go, there was nothing to be done. It's not the way that God works. It's not the way that the gospel works. It's so, so much better to get involved in the early chapters of the story. And friends, that's why it is so important to remember that even where divorce may be permitted, it is not commanded, not compulsory. Isn't that an amazing thing? In all of those examples I gave us, sexual immorality, desertion, humiliating neglect and abuse, 
Divorce may be permitted, but it is not commanded, not compulsory. You know, sometimes sin spreads its tentacles around our heart, doesn't it? It weaves such strong cords that we cannot seem to break it. Sometimes the the fallenness of the world and our relationships spreads its reach so far that some marriage unions just become irretrievably broken. Divorce is permitted for immorality, for desertion, abuse, yet it is not commanded for any of those things. Does that surprise you? I think it should, shouldn't it, when we see what some people suffer in marriage. And yet, no, divorce is not commanded because here's why in any one of those three types of marriage, forgiveness might yet win through. In any one of those three types of marriage, forgiveness, grace, might yet triumph. God God is not just a divorcee, is he? He remarries. He, He calls back the people that he once sent away. Sets his love upon them again. The the people who trampled his love, who trashed his garden, who vandalized his house, who spurned his love, he calls them back. Who who does he marry? A prostitute girl. The, The people who wandered off and spurned him. And so it is with us, friends. Divorce is permitted. But the deeply broken, spurned lover may, with God's grace, forgive. The deserter may return, and friends, wonder of wonders, through gospel grace, the deserter may return in tears and shame and repentance, and they they return to find bread and wine on the table and the best robe and the fattened calf killed. Is that possible? We like to read about it in the Bible, don't we? We like, to think we're, we like to think God can do that. Is it possible? Or is the good news of Jesus too weak for that? Oh, friends, even the abuser, even the abuser may repent. There may be healing for what they did. Remember Saul, Paul, what did he do? Held the coats of men who murdered and approved the murdering of Christ's followers. What does he end up doing? Following the Lord himself. Oh, Jesus always, always brings the promise of gospel transformation. Some people head towards divorce and the gospel can stop it. And the gospel can arrest people in their tracks. And divorce is the solution only when all else fails. I want to say, friends, as I finish, we need to say that that is just as true where divorce has already happened. Where divorce had to happen. It's just as true whether a sinful divorce took place or a divorce caused by sin but which was not itself sinful. In none of those cases, in none of them, does God ever pull down the curtain and say to somebody, do you know what, that's it, you've blown it, you're you're done here. This is the final act, the final chapter for you. No, the the pain of divorce can be healed with the gospel of grace. The the only thing that marks the end of the road for somebody's walk with the Lord Jesus, we need to know this, the only thing 
is what Jesus says in verse 5 of Mark's Gospel, chapter 10. Because of your hardness of heart. Hardness of heart is the only thing that closes the door to life with Jesus. Oh, may God give us in his kindness, friends. May he cause us to cherish his original intention. May he give us a refusal to ever stigmatize anyone. May he give us profound compassion for others in this broken world in which we live. Repentance for our sins, protection for the weak, faithfulness to those that we are bound to today, and love for Christ and his word in first place in our hearts all our days. Amen.